So let me open today with a story, a story uh, I heard from the infamous Steve Kerr, the intro to anthropology professor uh, here on campus, or Gary Kerr. Steve Kerr was a point guard. Uh, Gary Kerr is not a point guard. Uh, But uh, from Gary Kerr, uh, and I remember him telling this story of him being in this Amazon village. A lot of what he does is he travels and he researches. And so he's in this Amazon village and... uh, he had these, this indigenous people group had invited him to a feast. They prepared this feast before him as their honored guest. And at it, there was the chiefs and there was the, his council and many noblemen from the tribe. And so they sit and there's this buffet of food and it's cultural to pass around the dishes of food. And, and in it, you take your hand and you scoop your food onto your plate and then the feast would begin. And so the, the, the bowl is being passed around and it gets to uh, the professor, and he, he's left-handed, because no, normal people are left-handed. And he reaches in, he scoops the food, and he puts it on his plate. And immediately, the warriors stood up, and they seized him, and the chief started shouting angrily at him. And so here he is, he's panicked, and his guides and his interpreters are standing up, interceding for him, and begging in languages he has no idea what is being said, begging the chief, talking to the chief, and there's this confusion and chaos. And when that had finally subsided, his guides came over to him and he explained what had went wrong. You see, what he had done is he had given these men the ultimate sign of disrespect. Because in this culture, uh, the left hand was not the hand you used for food. The left hand was the hand you used to clean up after yourself, after you've used the restroom. And so for him doing this, this was the sign of basically the middle finger to this entire culture. And this is something that's so foreign in America. We don't even consider what hand we eat our food with and how offensive that might be to someone. Yet here he was, a stranger in a foreign land, totally terrified, totally caught off guard, and met with confusion and hostility based off something he didn't even know to be true, but was a different custom back home. And though uh, we see this here, we also see in the book of 1 Peter this contrast that we've been looking at the last uh, few weeks now in 1 Peter. The passage we closed with last week says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so what Peter is saying here is he's saying for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who consider themselves Christians, you are a new people, literally a new ethnos, a new ethnic, a new race, a holy people. You have a new identity. You belong to and are possessed by God. And by nature of that, you are no longer what you once were. And along with that comes a new code of conduct, a new citizenship, a new personal right. And while Dr. Kerr's conduct was thoughtless and accidental, when we consider ourselves, we must be mindful of how our gospel citizenship shapes our actions and is to be responded to as we live in a different culture, as we live in a place which is foreign. You see, believers in Christ Jesus belong to another world. 
We see that in Hebrews 12 when there's, uh, the author is speaking of the saints of old and says they were longing for a heavenly kingdom, one that cannot be shaken. And so while we're redeemed for the next world, we live in this one. It's both part of God's plan that one day we will live in a new creation where all of the evil and harm is gone, but yet we live here. We are citizens of a unique culture, but we are also citizens of a present culture. So the question we want to look at today is how does that citizenship change the way you live in this wor world, in this life? Are you to be offensive in foolish ways? Are you to blend in and ride it out and hope that we make it to that great and glorious day when everything is set back right? Are we different and distinct? Do we have different rules and different laws and different actions simply because God wants us to be different? He wants us to be awkward. He wants us to be unique. Or perhaps you yourself in here are not a Christian and you've always wondered why it is that Christians need to act differently, talk differently, and be differently. Why is it they seem so pretentious in the things that they are doing? What I want you to see tonight is that gospel citizenship, belonging to the gospel, is still a public responsibility. Gospel citizenship is a public responsibility. And what we're going to see tonight is three opposites, three paradoxes, three seeming contradictions in this text, which are for those of us who are in this world, but not of this world. So before we begin tonight, I want to pray that God will make us more and more into his people so that we can see and respond rightly in light of what Christ has done in our hearts. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the comprehensive salvation you have provided for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that when you came to save us, you didn't wait for us to respond. You didn't offer us a graduated process, but instead you saved us in an instant. We once had not received mercy, but through the blood of Christ, we received mercy. We were once not a people, but through the death of Christ, we became God's people. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that any sort of commands, any sort of request to alter our actions or our hopes is done only in response to what Christ already did for us. That, Lord, we don't view the commands of Scripture as things we do in order to be Christian or things we do only because we ought to be because we are Christian, but we do them because Christ has changed us into something new and new things act differently. And Lord, I pray for us as we look at this text that we are able to assess our own lives so that we could see where we are distinct in right ways and where we are distinct in foolish ways, where we are similar to the world and where we are similar to Christ. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So again, we have to re remember that we're reading a letter. Paul or Peter, Paul didn't do anything with this. Peter didn't uh, break this up into 16 weeks. It was meant to be read in one sitting. And so what Peter just said last week about identity is a massive shift and it's important because Peter's writing to a group of churches we saw which were in dispersion. They were in exile. 
They're facing increasing political pressure from the authorities. They're under social pressure from their peers and coworkers to not do certain things and to do other things. And there's this conglomerate of both friends you know and, and individuals who existed in power over you who are beginning to constrict and to conform them into something. And that's why we saw a few weeks ago, Paul says, or Peter, excuse me, says, do not be conformed to the world. There is this pressure that they ought to be or ought to do something which the world wants them to do. And so it's not simply a nice first century Instagram quote or coffee mug verse when Peter says, once you were not a people and now you are God's people. That verse, though it sounds great and it sounds sweet, it had this transformative paradigm shifting statement about who they are. Who they are changes everything. Who they are is able to push back against that which constrains. And immediately after this affirmation of new identity in Jesus Christ, Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain, that means to withhold from, to not do, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So in these words, we see uh, Peter talking to Christians and contrasting that with Gentiles. Gentiles were those who were not saved, those who were, were Greek in their thought, who didn't believe in Jesus. And here he is saying the first paradox of gospel citizenship that we're going to see tonight. He is saying that gospel living is opposed and yet beneficial. It is opposed by a culture and yet it's beneficial for that exact same culture. And what he's doing is he's challenging the status quo. He's challenging what these Christians thought to be normal. And in so doing, he's challenging what you think to be normal. Because generally we think that what is normal is that which is accepted by society, right? You wear the clothes you wear, you listen to the music you listen to, you watch the movies you watch because culture says those are things you do. If you're a hipster, you do the exact opposite of all of that, but there's still a subculture that wants to do that. Culture says, listen to your heart. We listen to our heart. Culture says, believe that if you really love people, you will let them love what they want to love. You will offend no one. You will not intervene. You will let yourself follow your own way and others follow their way. And that's normal. That's how we flourish. That's what's good. That's what's beneficial. But Peter blows up this philosophy. The status quo for the world is not the status quo for the believer. And this distinction, this uniqueness begins right here with what Peter's talking about. The distinction that you wrestle with in your own heart, the distinction that hopefully you see in those Christians around you, doesn't begin externally. It begins with what Peter called as the internal fight against sin. Peter talks about these warring passions, or the Greek word is also pleasures, these warring affections inside of your flesh, and he says it wages war against your soul. That soul is something we saw in 1 Peter 1 that Jesus purchased, that he has made imperishable and undefiled, which he has redeemed, which has uh, uh, brought the salvation, which secures the salvation of our souls. And so here in 1 Peter 1, we see the whole work of God bringing us the salvation of those souls. And now we see these passions which lie in our hearts, waging war against our souls. 
And for any of you who think the most trustworthy voice in your life is that of your own heart, you've probably never had a heart-to-heart with your heart. For those of you who live by Disney movies and Nickelodeon shows, which my life is infiltrated with now with my kids, this theme shows up everywhere. But I know my heart, and you know your heart. And though we have good intentions, my heart is arrogant and it wants to be prized. It wants to be affirmed. My heart wants to be treasured and become the center of attention at all cost. My heart desires things which I know to be hostile to my growth in Christ. And here's this tension. Well, I know Jesus has redeemed my heart. He hasn't neutralized it. Well, I know Jesus has changed my heart. He hasn't silenced it. But through the power of Jesus' resurrection, he has given us power over it. Now, even at this point, we haven't gotten to the point of opposition because this still sounds good according to culture. Do what's best in your own heart. Be convinced of what you want to do and do it well. If you want to follow God, follow God. If you want to follow Buddha, follow Buddha. If you just want to be a happy person, then be a happy person. However, The measure of our ability to fight sin and follow God isn't seen only in our eternal battle. It's also seen in our external actions. What we believe to be true inside of us, the war we wage against passions inside of us cannot remain a personal issue, but it pushes on who we are and what we do. And here Peter tells us to abstain from sins and immediately begins talking about our public conduct. To change your thoughts on the gospel is to change your whole life to center on the gospel. Because when we're responding to the gospel, we're not responding to this mental ascent of us figuring something out. We're responding to Jesus kicking down the door of our heart and changing us into an object of mercy, in changing us to a holy priesthood, a royal nation set apart for God's glory We become new in all we do. You see, your salvation, your citizenship in the gospel must show up in the public sphere because your beliefs are connected to your actions. And in this phenomenon, belief dictating action, this is where opposition comes. Why? Have you ever thought of that? Why is the world opposed Christians. Why is it that you are hesitant to share the gospel with someone who sits next to you when you yourself know that gospel is your greatest joy? Isn't it that we know it's often unpopular? We know it's often met with opposition? What kind of threat would a people be when their only commands is to love God and love others? But did you look at what Paul said in verse 12? He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see that? Keep your, Paul, Peter didn't say, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles in the event one day they get frustrated with you and speak against you. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Keep your conduct among the unbelievers. Keep your conduct among your classmates, your peers, and your coworkers honorable, that is, respectable or worthy, 
so that when they speak against you as an evildoer, when you are the object of their scorn, when you are the object of things which they hate, they may see your good deeds and glorify the God who is in heaven. Because they speak against us, saying we're evildoers, this is the irony, when Peter just told us to avoid evil. So why is it that we wrestle with being accused and being opposed as evildoers oppose us and what we see later is called foolishness when Peter's saying, don't be evil? Doesn't that seem like a contradiction? Don't be evil. People are going to call you evil. Why is this? It's because the God, without the gospel, you have no bearing of morality. The gospel is what defines for us what is good and right, what is evil and beneficial. The gospel stands at odds with much of what culture says is good. And an illustration of this is, uh, in case you missed it, there was an election two days ago. And I was up uh, watching MSNBC the night of the election, uh, and it was right when they hadn't announced all of the states yet, but the MSNBC crew was about to melt down because the inevitable election of Donald Trump seemed to be happening. And I watched one woman commenter despairingly grieved at the new reality that a Republican president, a Republican House, and a Republican Senate proved to be that there was now no greater threat to Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court ruling which made abortion legal. And she was shaken to her core, that Roe vs. Wade could now be threatened. And here we have, for the first time in decades, perhaps the ability to stop the slaughter of millions of unborn humans, humans made in the image of God, humans meant like you to find your identity in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is seen by some that to prevent that slaughter is the most wicked and evil thing our minds could think of. Our minds are twisted and inverted on what is good and what is evil. And that's because the gospel will be called foolishness by the world's standards because the gospel doesn't play by the world's standards. Paul, actually Paul this time, says God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You see, the world thinks that human flourishing must come at the cost of something. And as long as we limit that something, we'll be fine. In order for women to try find true freedom, they should have the right to destroy the life inside of them. In order for men to be free from responsibility and to be true men, they ought to have the ability to hit the delete button when they have poor decisions. And to an extent, the gospel confirms this theory. Human flourishing comes at a cost. We must give up something. And yet that cost, the cost of true human flourishing doesn't come at the cost of the unborn. It doesn't come at the cost of women. It doesn't come at the cost of men. It doesn't come at the cost of blacks or whites or rich or poor. True human flourishing comes at the expense of Jesus who died for you. Jesus paid the price to bring the flourishing. Jesus paid the price to save us. And this message of Jesus dying for sinners is offensive to this world. In trying to make sense of Trump's election, many are turning and examining this wonderful, mystical, scientific polling creature known as evangelical Christians. And there are many Christians whom I know 
who voted for Donald Trump, not because they affirm his character and even almost in spite of his character, but they chose to, to protect aspects of religious liberty or Supreme Court appointments from the hands of those who might use it to damage humanity. And while I don't want to diagnose the, the reasons for voting, I do want to point out that there is a narrative now in culture, which is now that evangelicals stand for what it is that they have affirmed. I made the mistake of getting on Facebook today. It's a terrible place. I'm not sure what's more terrifying, the result of the election or the result of our social media response. And we see now Christians being viewed as the most negative things that no right Christian would ever want affirmed of them. That we are bigots, insolent haters, misogynists, racists, and hotheads. And what this text is saying is that you must fight with the core of your new identity, with the grace of Jesus Christ, to make it so none of those words find the place in the dictionary definition of Christian in this world because they are so antithetical to what the gospel does in us. And yet what this text also says is that we must not be, must not be surprised when the display of our best attributes is still met with hate. But... By our good deeds, even in the face of those who will misconstrue them due to their evil hearts and their inversion of morality, our realization of what is good and right based on the gospel of Jesus Christ plays witness to those who are trapped. We might be rebuked. We might be poorly spoken of. We might even face persecution. But if our actions and our conduct are shaped by the gospel, which if that is our identity, we cannot not but do that, the same thing they ridicule as evil in you might one day prove to be their salvation. You see, your ability to act out under the gospel is also part of your role in proclaiming the gospel. It was the gospel-based actions of Jesus Christ dying on the cross as a criminal which led the centurion to say, surely this man is the son of God. It was the actions of Paul responding to the gospel who refused to stop preaching the words of salvation that then led to his imprisonment which led to the Philippian jailer confessing Christ. You see, right now in this day, in this culture, for every Christian across the globe, in democracies and dictatorships, under persecution, or in times of flourishing, there is nothing better for you and there's nothing better for those around you than to allow the gospel to shape your actions even if people come against you as evil doers. Then we get to the second paradox of gospel citizenship. Gospel living is subtle, yet bold. It's subtle, but it's bold. Sounds like a coffee. Um, let's look here at 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15. This is what uh, Jackson read for us. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Did I read further than I was supposed to? No, I'm good. Okay, good. Uh, so, question. Think about this. How can you serve the Lord? 
If I were to ask you, how is it right now that you are serving the Lord? What would you say? If I asked you to describe for me in the last four years, in what ways did you serve the Lord? In what ways did you please God? In what ways would God say, well done, good and faithful servant? What would you say? I mean, oftentimes, in our own hearts, we think in terms of those capstone events, right? I helped build a, a house for a low-income family. I went on a missions trip. I evangelized in public. I preached the gospel. I served those who needed service. I honored the widows. I took care of the orphans. And all those things are good and great, and we ought to do those. But do you see also the subtle way that God called us to serve him in this text? He says, through obeying those who are in authority over you you are fulfilling the will of the Lord. While we might one day go on a mission trip, while I pray that in our midst even there are career missionaries who don't go for one-week journeys but move across the ocean to serve a people group for the rest of their life, every day, every day by nature of God's plan, each and every one of us live in a place where we are under authority of someone. And in that we have this often overlooked and often deemed unimportant task. And yet in that task of responding to those who are in authority over us, we see a momentous witness for Jesus. It seems ordinary. It seems boring. But here, the living word of God says, this is the will of God that you should do this. You see, in January, we will have a new president. And regardless of your views on him, it says here that you're subject to him. Verse 17 says you ought to honor him. And this would have been true if Trump were elected or if Hillary were elected or if anybody else were elected. We don't get to opt into this when we approve of that person. We are opted into this because God has established this person. You see, twice in this passage, we see a stressing of God's desire. In verse 13, it says, be subject for the Lord's sake. In verse 15, it says, this is the will of God. You see how you right now as a college student who could probably care less about elections and taxes and things like that because we have no income to be taxed. And yet in this moment, what the Bible says is how we view politics and governments and civil rights and rules and laws is far more than a philosophical or political decision. It's a redemptive one. It's one that God has given you to make for his own glory. This is one that's easy to understand when governments are good, right? I mean, Peter described a good government, a government where the emperor sends governors to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. If every government were that way, we would love this text, right? We would have no problem obeying dictators and rulers and presidents and kings and queens who live in this way. This would be easy. But we have to remember the historical context of this book. At this time, there was an emperor. You might have heard of him. His name was Nero. And though at this time he was still young in his emperorship, he'd throw infamous garden parties illumined by the burning corpses of Christians who stood in his way. There, not too long before this book was written, there was a governor in Jerusalem named Pilate. And that governor sentenced a simple Galilean carpenter to death on a cross. 
You see, Peter's not writing saying we ought to be mindful and subjected to authorities only in times of utopia. He's writing for the reality of life in this broken world. You see, Paul in Romans 13.4 says that we are to be subject to the authorities because they do not bear the sword in vain. We are to be in subject. We are to hold an honor. We ought to think before we tweet about those to whom God has given the sword, even if that same sword is used to strike down God's people. Why? Why would we do this? Why would God allow this? Because again, we have to remember who it is that gets to define what is good and what is evil. And the greatest act of evil was Jesus being sent as a criminal to the cross. But the greatest act of good is that Jesus went to the cross for your sins. You see, good and evil for God are both tools he uses for his redemption. We are only to resist the government when the go- until the government resists, or we are only to resist the government when the government resists God. But even in those moments when the government is telling us to violate the law of God, God is still seeking to use his good. God used Pilate to instigate redemption through the slaughter of an innocent man. God will also use fallen governments today as tools for his own redemption. And I love verse 15. This is the will of God, that by your good works you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. You see, foolish men call good evil. Foolish men call evil good. Foolish men persecute the church. Foolish men seek to silence the gospel. But in the great reversal that only God can accomplish, it is the foolish men who are silenced. Pharaoh attempted to silence a people, but instead he raised the man who would come and conquer him in the name of God. The officials attempted to silence Paul by prohibiting him to preach the gospel, but he only went on to preach it more and more. You see, Nero no longer gives orders heard by human ears, but every day across the globe, Jesus calls men to his name for his glory and his good. You see, a Chinese Christian named Watchman Nee was arrested for preaching the gospel and he was put in prison. But officials became frustrated because he wrote more books in prison and he converted all the guards. And so what happened is they got together and they said, we'll give, we'll put guards in six hour shifts. And in these six hour shifts, they will not have time to hear and respond to the gospel. So the guards kept coming and converts kept leaving. Man after man would come and he would preach the gospel and day after day, men would be saved, saved so much so that many of these guards were then convicted to help smuggle the writings of knee to the persecuted underground church in China. You see, we are to, be, to honor and to be subjected to all kinds of authority because it's often through the worst types of authority that God accomplishes his plan for redemption and good. And while we might not have a watchman knee moment today, you have authority figures over you. How are you responding to those? How are you responding to your RAs or to your teachers or to your parents? How are you being an active 
witness for good? How are you being an opponent to that which is truly evil? Because even on a campus which is predominantly opposed to the gospel, will you follow the words of the Apostle Paul in all your actions with everyday boldness? In Romans 12, verses 20 through 21. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Where in your life has the identity of Christ made you an active worker for good and a violent enemy against that which is evil? And where do you seek to do that regardless of the authorities who might resist you and even because the authorities resist you? You see, we are to live in light of inverse priorities. We are to live in a subtle but ordinarily bold way. And lastly, we are to see that gospel living is free and bound. Look with me in closing. 1 Peter 2, verses 16 through 17. Live as people who are free. See, I didn't even pick this text this week in a week of a democratic election. God's just good and he gives us words like this. Uh, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. You see, we all love freedom. Culture loves freedom. And yet our culture, despite how liberal it is, how progressive it is, how much it speaks of freedom, we know freedom doesn't actually exist here. I was just talking to Jackson. Last night, he was woken up three times by a man at two o'clock in the morning because he got stopped at three points of security to get into the dorms. Once at the entry point, once on his floor, and once outside his own door. If we are such a free culture, why do we need so many keys? Perhaps it's because we know the freedom culture offers us isn't safe. But the gospel is freeing. In the gospel, we've been set free, free in a wonderful way, a freedom that our world can only dream about. In the gospel, we've been freed from sin, freed from death, free from shame, free from slavery, free from judgment. But our freedom is bound. Our freedom is bound to God. It says in the same sentence, we are to be, live as those who are free, as bondservants to God. There is this wonderful tension. We are free to use our freedom in the way God desires for us to do it. We are free to be free to live in a way which honors God, but you are not free from God. You are not free to live however you feel. Paul says this in Romans 6, 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You see, because we have tasted the salvation of God, everything changes. We are sanctified, which means to be set apart. We are put on a new track. Why? That we might reach the end, eternal life. Because we've tasted the redemption of God, you as a believer do not want to make excuses for your own actions. We do not want to use our freedom as a cover-up for sin, but how frequently we do that. I know I need to work on that, but there's grace, right? I know I need to get better at that, but Jesus died for me. 
I know I'm bad in a lot of ways, but I'm really good in many ways. I know I wrestle with this, but I go to church and I'm a good person. I know that one day I need to fix this, but right now I just want to have fun. You see, when we know the weight of our salvation and the identity which Peter told us last week, we press forward into a different style of life because we know our redemption sets us apart both in our hearts and also in our public actions. I want GCF to be free in a way which is wonderful, loving, evangelistic, honoring, and done in the fear of God. And for those of you who are believers, I want to give you a word of caution that Paul gives believers in 1 Corinthians. And here's what I want you to hear. I want you, before we look at this, get off the screen, go away. I want you to think and assess your own life. Where are you allowing? Here we see these overwhelming commands for good. These overwhelming commands to flee sin, to abstain from the passions of our flesh. Where are you allowing those things to have hold in your life? Where are you allowing your conduct among your peers to be similar to them and antithetical to the gospel, opposed to it, opposite of it? And now, now, I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So I find this to be one of the most terrifying passages in all of scripture. Because here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, have nothing to do with people who are greedy, who struggle with worship, who are broken, who are sexually immoral, who are lustful, who are swindlers, and who are self-centered. And they says, well, I'm not talking about those who are not saved. <laughs> because if you didn't have anything to do with those, how would you evangelize to them? If you removed yourself from the people who did evil in the world, how would you follow the call to make disciples? How would you preach the gospel? I'm not talking to those outside of the church. I'm talking to you. Have nothing to do with those who call themselves Christians but live in accordance to the world and not in light of the citizenship of the gospel. If there is a person in your midst who calls himself brother, who lives in accord with the rules of the world and chooses not to fear God, run from him. Do not go to Omnom Noons with him. Do not eat at Jaker's with him. Do not tell him that God is doing great things in his life. Are you that person? Are you the person to whom good is a great idea, but not a present reality? Are you a person to whom the identity of Christ has yet to shape your affections? If your citizenship gives you merit to stay in sin, you are no citizen of my gospel. You are no convert of my Jesus. And while there's room for grace in our growth, there is no room for apathetic affections towards the sin we allow to live in our lives. 
We talked two weeks ago about how often we are so scared to lose our friends that we allow our friends to lose their life by condoning what they're doing. In your own heart, how are your actions free actions? How are your actions free from sin but bound to the purposes of God, of sharing the good news with those around you, of living distinctly in what we see with our eyes, say with our mouths and hear with our ears, of what we do with our time, of where we spend our money? For there will be a day when the rules of this world are rewritten and there will no longer be citizens of one kingdom and citizens of another. There will only be those who are in the gospel. And in that day, no one will approach the kingdom. No one will approach the judge unless they are covered by the gospel which changes our heart and our actions. For those of you in here who do not believe, I urge you to look at the freedom and mercy that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. To look at the God who possessed the sinner to make him into something the sinner could never be. The one who made no people a people. The one who gave, no, who gave mercy to those who had no mercy. I urge you to accept the Jesus who died in your place and called you to live as a free servant of God. And I pray that together, here on this campus and in your Bible study groups, I pray that we will live together as better citizens in this world because we are living in the full color of the citizenship we have in the next world. I pray that we are mindful of the next life but focused on living well in this life. I don't want to be different by accident or by foolishness like the professor in the beginning of this sermon. I want to do it intentionally in submission to the God who orchestrates all of history for his good. In submission to what Stephen will talk about next week as he preaches with you, orchestrates redemption through the saddest of circumstances. And yet that same God has given you an identity and has demanded a responsibility to live differently, to pursue good, to promote glory, and to save the lost. Let's pray. Lord, we, we need a greater portrait, a greater picture of what you've done in our life. Oftentimes we are weak in living because we are weak in seeing what you've done for us. And so Lord, I pray that you bless this group with conversion. I pray that you bring non-believers into this midst through the efforts of these people, through friends, through lunches, through study groups, so that we might see those people brought from no mercy to mercy, from not a people to people, from darkness to light, from life to death, from wrath to love, so that we can see in a new way the transformation of the gospel, the joy that salvation brings, the identity of Christ, which changes not only who we worship, but how we live as a response to that worship. Lord, I pray that you will not allow us to be the man who covers up evil with the freedom of grace, but instead someone who chooses to wage war against the passions of our flesh, one who chooses to stand boldly every day in submission to those around him so that he might be a witness to God in the good and the bad. I pray that you make us people who live with freedom, bound through the fear of you, knowing that it is better to be accepted by God and rejected by men because through the rejection of Christ, we gain acceptance before God. 
Lord, I pray that we become a group that lives distinctly and that there will be one day before God on the day of judgment, someone who stands there accepted by Christ because he saw the different actions of someone in this room. Because the lives of the church are such a, uh, such a, such a, a illuminating action to those around us that they might see Jesus in our actions and hear Jesus in our words. Lord, you have made us new. And that new is visible. So let us not hide it. Let us not be apathetic towards it. But let us be zealous today to leave this place and to choose to do good. We pray this in your name. Amen.